You're listening to Talking Policy, a podcast of the UC Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation. The war in Ukraine is challenging assumptions about the world among policymakers and ordinary citizens alike. To help listeners understand what's happening, what it means, and what might happen next, a new Talking Policy series will explore the political, economic, security, and humanitarian implications of the Ukraine invasion. We're here today to talk with Christina Schneider, who co-leads IGCC's Future of Democracy Initiative and is a professor of political science at UC San Diego. Christina's research focuses on the domestic politics of cooperation and bargaining in international organizations with a focus on the European Union. And in 2013, she was awarded the Jean Monnet Chair of the EU, Jean Monnet being one of the founding fathers of the EU. Christina, welcome to Talking Policy. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. We're here today to talk with you about the perspective from Europe. Is this a 9-11 moment for Europe? And what are the long-term ramifications of this invasion? Lindsay, while it is early, the current actions of the European Union and also academic research on political development and integration in the EU more broadly indicates that the war in Ukraine indeed has the potential to create Um, the momentum to lead to a significant shift in how political, economic, and military order is structured in Europe. So the EU has always been about war and peace, but this urgent sense of security that existed right after World War II has faded over time and is barely remembered, especially by young Europeans who focus on many of the problems of the European Union. So this includes its crises, its inefficiencies, and the shortcomings in economic foreign and security policies. To understand just how big the current policy shifts are, consider how the EU was structured and and how little progress it has made um, really in terms of integration. So for the last 30 years, EU members have been more or less unwilling to delegate serious fiscal responsibilities such as taxing, spending, and borrowing to the EU. Um, The U.S. also had tremendous problems dealing with the refugee crisis, especially in 2015, because EU members denied uh, largely a centralized policy on asylum um, and also uh, did not allow for a common control over its external borders. There's also been very minimal security and defense coordination, which has fallen far short of what would be needed to respond effectively in times of an act of aggression from an outside state. And finally, the EU has um, proven relatively toothless in its response to the far-right extremist parties, um, promoting Eurosceptic views and leading to democratic backsliding across a number of European states. But paradoxically, really, the EU has also been most likely to move forward toward greater integration in times of deep crises. So, for example, the decision to integrate um, fiscal policies was a consequence of the European debt crisis, or the decision to centralize health policies further is a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then the decision um, to move forward with deeper security and defense cooperation was made after the UK's decision to exit the UK. So in all of these crises, 
there was a prediction that the EU would implode, that it would fail, um, but it oftentimes muddled through. That's a term that we Europeans like to use and came out stronger as a consequence. And the current situation is far a far greater threat to Europe than any of the threats the EU has faced in the last 30 years. Uh, this war has shown Europeans that Russia is a serious threat to European collective security. And it confirms that European integration is still in essence about war and peace. So for example, in the draft conclusions of this week's um, Versailles summit, where EU leaders come together, they stated that Russia's war of aggression constitutes a tectonic shift in European history. And so this um, aligns well with um, the unprecedented policy shifts that we see on multiple dimensions right now in Europe. So um, EU members have implemented an unprecedented um, number of financial and economic sanctions on Russia. Um, there's now a very serious attempt to develop a long-term policy on reducing gas and oil dependency from Russia, something that seemed unthinkable even after Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014. There's an increased political unity within the European institutions and also within European countries. So strikingly, for example, Hungary and Poland who have been quite obstructive in EU decision-making suddenly stopped being obstructive. They, um, they, they're now uh, supportive of sanctions and they have um, reduced their pro-Russian rhetoric. There's also increased cooperation on refugees. So again, back in 2015, during the Syrian refugee crisis, Europe was in political turmoil and especially the Central and Eastern European countries pushed against an opening of their borders and now it's exactly those countries that have not only opened their borders, but welcomed the refugees almost unconditionally. And then there's the potential of an, the actual potential of an EU membership for Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia. So in terms of the long-term shifts, aside from the potential accession of those countries to the European Union, most important are changes in the military and security structure of the EU. So let me just give you a couple of examples. So we're currently experiencing a momentous turn in the EU's defense strategy, which includes greater cooperation, a strengthening of EU's collective defense article, and an increased commitment to military and defense spending. And Germany is a very good example. It's like almost a perfect example for this. The invasion of Ukraine um, has achieved what the EU has pushed for for years and what seemed unthinkable even in January. That is the revolution in German security and defense policy. These include a $113 billion defense fund to modernize uh, the German military. This will be anchored in German basic law, so it cannot be used for any other purposes. A commitment to increase annual defense spending to more than 2% of GDP. So for comparison, the current level is below 1.5%. Uh, Germany will supply Ukraine with, uh, Ukraine with lethal weapons, something that has been previously rejectable, uh, rejected as being incompatible with German basic law, and it will purchase uh, armed drones. And then uh, the German chancellor also announced, of course, that Germany would indefinitely suspend Nord Stream 2 pipeline project. So these shifts really are tremendous. Many of them will be ingrained in in domestic law, and this means that they're likely to shift policies in the long term. So together, I think they do have the potential to remake EU foreign policy and propel the EU toward greater integration. Uh, Jean Monnet uh, said that Europe will be forged in crises, and um, it sounds like he was right. Extraordinary um, policy shifts. I want to back up a minute and ask you about some of the, the European strategic choices 
in the lead up to the to the invasion of Ukraine. I think one of the questions on a lot of people's minds, you know, whether thinking about European institutions or the United States or the West more broadly, is wh- why didn't they stop Putin? Can you talk a little bit about what you think have been some of Europe's most important strategic errors in the lead up to this invasion? This is probably the million dollar question. And if we could answer this, it would have probably avoided many of the defining crises of our times, including World War II and the climate crisis, right? It, It reminds me of this why. So that's a really tough one to answer, but let me just make a few observations here. It is important to remember that even though the Ukraine is officially sovereign, unofficially NATO and the EU have always accepted informally that Ukraine was seen by Russia as a buffer country between the West and the East and a country that Putin also sees as as really belonging into Russia. And and, and that um, has created more hesitancy in, in terms of any response. Um, They're walking a very fine line. There's, of course, a huge concern that we're dealing with a country that um, has nuclear weapons and any military involvement on the side of the EU or the side of NATO or the side of any individual Western country could lead to another world war. Then there's the high dependency on Russia in both agriculture and energy sectors. And I went back, I, I, I talked about this in 2014, um, during the last uh, war in Ukraine. And, and one, of, one of the suggestions um, was to radically reduce European dependency in these sectors. Um, and that hasn't happened. So I would see this as one very big strategic mistake. And then even the belief um, that Russia would stop at Crimea Donbass and Luhansk, and that it wouldn't um, it wouldn't militarily intervene in in the west of Ukraine. That is that has experts um, really puzzled. So, and then finally, maybe the close relationship that many countries have, especially Germany, with Putin and with Russia. And I think all of these reasons, all of these factors, led to a foreign policy that was focused on cooperation, friendly friendly relations, and economic integration. So the the Europeans really had a false expectation that this would be the right strategy to achieve peace in Russia without causing a war and without um, facing serious energy uh, repercussions. And so as a consequence, many European governments, especially Germany, advocated for continued dialogue with Russia and friendly relations, despite its aggression in Georgia and in Crimea and East Ukraine and Syria even. And it also explains why Europe had little appetite to take collective defense seriously. In a strong symbol of Western resolve, the new German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, um, indefinitely paused certification of the Nord Stream 2, which is a set of offshore natural gas pipelines in Europe that go under the Baltic Sea from Russia to Germany. Why did Germany do this? And do you think that they will hold to this? Yes, uh, so so this is quite a tectonic shift. This is this was a, the the speech of the German Chancellor in the Bundestag was a watershed moment for for any German, um, given its uh, pacifist uh, views going forward and its very close relations with Russia. And um, and it was very it was not expected. And to really understand the significance of this, it's important to know that most of Germany's gas, oil, and coal 
comes from Russia, um, almost 40% of its gas, I believe, um, which is in line with the average European dependency on gas. And on top of that, Germany's gas storage levels are at an extremely historically low level after Putin refused to increase gas during the shortage um, last winter. So the expectation is that if um, Putin cuts the pipelines or if they if they go out, which he has threatened as a consequence of those sanctions, Europeans would um, face a rationing of gas, they uh, prices for energy would skyrocket. So they would have a real energy crisis on their hand, um, a crisis that is worse than the pandemic that we're facing right now. The current discussions at the EU level indicate that leaders plan to reduce dependency more rapidly now that it um, initially planned. So it is unlikely that we will see an immediate ban on um, oil and gas similar to the US ban. In my view, the decision to freeze Nord Stream 2 coupled with the persistent reluctance to join the US and ban on oil and gas imports completely and immediately can be seen as a part of a strategy to phase out dependency on Russia in the long term while averting a serious energy crisis in the short and medium term. So this is an extremely delicate balance to navigate, but um, I do think that um, the first steps have been taken, and especially since they're now being discussed in the EU context, it will be um, less likely for German, the German government to backpedal on, 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 on this type of policy. Less than a week after the invasion, uh, the Ukrainian government, followed by the governments of Moldova and Georgia, applied to join NATO and the EU. There has been some historic skepticism about their joining, um, but now there are some signals of openness to this. I, again, is this this is just a really interesting shift? Is Europe changing its mind on this? Tell us a little bit about. Give us some of the background on this, and where where do things stand now? Yes, this is a great question, and I've spent years researching enlargement, um, especially with a focus on on Eastern European countries. So. In some ways it does, but looking back at the discussions during the 2014 war, I, I actually unfortunately have not seen a significantly different rhetoric, at least in terms of actual membership, to be honest. Um, for example, back in 2005, even the commission president said that Ukraine's future is in the EU. So this is very similar to statements that the commission made in, in recent days. I would argue that the likelihood of a rapid accession is still low and accession, if it happens, would be far in the future. But the war does have increased the likelihood of official candidacy and eventual accession of the state significantly, depending, of course, on the outcome of the war and Ukraine's status. I can talk a little bit more about uh, wh what some of the challenges are. Um, so there's, of course, there's incentives for the EU to integrate Ukraine. Very importantly, the, again, the EU was built on this idea to promote security, peace, and stability in Europe by fostering democracy and by creating economic prosperity through economic integration. And it is um, it has a very strong norm that any European country that wants to be part of the EU is welcome to join the EU if it can fulfill these criteria of democracy and, and stable economics. So indeed, there, had, there has been a process of approachment since the 1990s. Um, it's important to remember that the EU already has an association agreement with Ukraine, 
which already has established greater economic ties. And, and these association agreements are typically seen as an initial step toward membership. So what are the major challenges? Well, first of all, is Russia's strong objection to Ukraine's membership in the EU. So we oftentimes focus on NATO as the red line, but it is important to remember that it was the refusal of pro-Russian Ukrainian president Viktor Yanukovych to sign this agreement that led to the 2013 Maidan protests, which then gave Russia the pretext to invade and occupy Crimea. So the EU has been seen as a red line for Russia in terms of the Ukraine. They do not want Ukraine to become a democratic uh, Western-oriented country. Um, it is also important to note that public support on EU membership in Ukraine itself is divided, especially in the East. Um, although that might change, of course, now with the invasion um, in, in the Ukraine. And then the rules of accession are quite demanding and require the support of all 27 EU member states. So that's already not an easy feat to achieve. And accession negotiations have often taken many years. Um, the Turkey is still negotiating. It, it has received official candidacy status in the 1980s. Um, and we already heard that EU leaders are quite divided over a fast-track accession to Ukraine before the Versailles summit of the EU. So if the EU governments agree on official candidacy, in the council, applicants need to satisfy the Copenhagen criteria, which include the requirement of being a full democracy. Um, the state has to be sovereign. That means it has to have control over its borders. They have to have a functioning market economy, and they have to be able and willing to implement the EU's body of rules and law, the so-called communautaire. So the problem is Ukraine is not a stable democracy right now, according to Freedom House. Its sovereignty is contested and has been contested ever since um, the annexation of Crimea. It's far away from being a functioning market economy. And there are additional concerns about the rule of law, corruption, and other issues. And then there is, of course, the EU's defense article. So there's Article 427, which is akin to NATO's Article 5. It makes clear that an attack on an EU country is an attack against all of the EU. So that would mean that if Ukraine became a member today, the EU would have to respond to Russia, potentially militarily to defend it, likely leading to another world war. And when we talk about the fast track, that is not likely to happen because it would require a change in the treaties that all members would have to agree on. And again, this is politically highly controversial because negotiations are the only leverage the EU has to get countries to implement the necessary political and economic reforms. And this in itself is seen as vital for the political unity and stability of the EU itself. So there are tremendous concerns that a premature accession of Ukraine could lead to an unraveling of the union itself. And the, challenge, the current challenges with developments in Hungary and Poland, and especially their democratic backsliding and conflictual behavior within the um, the council have only led to an increase of these concerns. Um, so it's really, it, I cannot emphasize enough how problematic these issues are for European integration. And of course, there would be a concern that if the rules are banned for Ukraine, they would have to be banned for others as well. So in, in, in some, I guess, despite the overall rhetoric and actions of the commission, the European parliament and some EU members, um, all this indicates to me that the EU isn't likely to fast-track Ukraine's accession. A much more likely outcome would be that the EU grant Ukraine applicant status with a more long-term prospect for membership. What about the former communist countries? 
who are members of the EU and are now on the front lines of a war. I'm thinking of Romania, the Baltic states, Poland. Do you think that their voices will carry more weight in the EU now, given the circumstances? Despite the fact that it is the political power of the Western European country, especially France and Germany, um, historically, really all states have carried significant weight within the decision-making process of the EU because of its um, principles of uh, consensus and compromise. My sense is that the war will likely reinforce the importance of political unity and that these principles that have become more violated recently by, by some, of, um, some of its member states. So, I, I, But I think this will happen on both sides as it becomes clear that the EU has the potential to be larger than the sum of its European parts. And the realization that only through unity can European states defend democracy, prosperity, and security in Europe. So I think that will that will create that, um, that shift. What are the implications of the crisis for European domestic politics? Um, obviously, we just went through Brexit. Um, there are many moving pieces. Macron has an election next month. How do you see things shifting or do you see things shifting? Um, what will this mean for some of the big players in Europe? They're absolutely shifting and uh, the, the implications for domestic politics will be large um, in the short term for sure, but potentially also in the long term. So when we talk about, um, when we talk about the United Kingdom, the war in Ukraine has necessitated and facilitated a reapproachment between the UK and the EU. Um, there's been it's been quite um, a toxic relationship, um, and uh, we see uh, that uh, already there is more cooperation. And again, it's seen on both sides that unity is vital to allow for a common and much more effective response to the Russian threat. I do think here that for the long term, this offers some hope for the currently strained relationship and for um, closer bilateral cooperation in the future. In France, it is likely that Macron will actually benefit politically. The current crisis exposes um, the limits of Europe to act on its own, but it also provides Europe with a rationale to make changes that um, France, that he has really pushed for. And so he's been on the forefront of this and he's been um, and he's benefited from this. It also allowed him to stay out of the of the campaign processing. He hasn't been in the weeds of um, the political campaigns in France. And then also importantly, it has been a huge challenge for far right parties such as Front National, uh, which have been largely pro-Russian. And they're now very busy backpedaling their statements and they've seen a decline in support. And then finally, another, so, so kind of that aligns with other trends in other countries that are um, with respect to the rise of the far right extremist parties in Europe that we've seen over the last decade or so. So in Hungary and Poland, right wing governments have become much less obstructive within Europe. Um, I already mentioned this. Orban said that he will not veto sanctions on Russia as a, as a good example. In Italy, the far, the far right under Salvini has come under really hot water because of its close ties to Putin. In Bulgaria, there has been a shift in public opinion, historically pro-Russian, and a minister was forced to resign because he said we shouldn't call the invasion um, a war. So, so there is um, a, a huge public pushback against um, 
the pro-Russian rhetoric of far right-wing parties, and that might have elect electoral consequences that could be quite long-lasting. I want to ask you two more questions. One is just for your personal reflections as someone who has spent your professional life devoted to looking at issues of European integration and cooperation, now a war um, unfolding in Europe. What is it like just personally to watch this unfold? It feels horrifying. It's um, extremely emotional. Um, my, my family has roots in Western and Eastern Europe. We have many friends and we have family who are um, directly exposed to the war. Um, it has torn through some of the family um, because we have we have members of the family who are very exposed to to Russian media and um, and uh, viewpoints are very different. So it is highly emotional. It is also as someone who very strongly identifies as a European, it it is unimaginable uh, to see not only that um, there is another war in the middle of Europe, but also the inability to respond to the human suffering that is happening right now. There's, there's this very strong sense of a moral obligation to do something. And as a researcher, I'm, I can tell you why neither the US nor NATO nor the EU will do what Ukraine actually needs in the short term. And, and, and that is incredibly frustrating um, on a personal level. What do you think Europe, European countries and, and the EU should be doing to help Ukraine? Personally, I think it would have helped to fast track Europe, the integration of Ukraine into Europe and potentially NATO um, much earlier before the war started, because uh, that would have been still a highly risky move. But uh, the hope would have been that Russia would be much less likely to invade a country that has NATO troops um, station. So we, we always talk about Russia having nuclear weapons, but the West does have nuclear weapons as well. So that could have been potentially deterring. Um, I do see all the rationales why they do not intervene right now. So, so I do believe that it is crucially important for the West to supply Ukraine with um, military equipment, um, financial support, that they open their borders for refugees, provide humanitarian support, um, and that they really move forward extremely rapidly on the oil and ban gas, not just here in the US, but it is much more important to do so in Europe. How do you think the Russian invasion of Ukraine will affect academic study of international security, international relations? And what would you like to see change in the academy? Much of the work has focused on domestic conflict, um, civil war, civil conflict, and um, because of the decline in interstate conflicts. And so this will probably lead to a renewed interest in, in studying these big um, interstate uh, conflicts. It will also lead to a much needed um, focus on the international relations um, of authoritarian states, um, how authoritarian states can cooperate. That's the big question right now about China and Russia, for example, and what implication that has for the West. And then finally, what, what, what I would also like to see is the understanding how these 
actions can affect domestic politics domestic politics and especially the future of democracy, um, not only in Europe, but also beyond. Um, because uh, what we have seen is that um, increasingly states such as, such as Russia under Putin have become increasingly bold and aggressive, and they have pushed back against democratization efforts quite successfully. And we see a, a decline around the world in the number of democracies and number of stable democracies um, with uh, consequences uh, that will be far lasting. And uh, we need to understand those better. And we need to understand um, potentially what, uh, what policies need to be implemented. Um, Christina, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us this morning. Really, really interesting talking with you. Appreciate your insights and sharing a little bit about personally um, what it's like to, to watch this unfold. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Lindsay Morgan. Thanks for being with us at IGCC and have a great week. 